Hey guys, so today I'm going to do something a little bit different than what I normally do. Instead of interviewing someone from a museum, uh, I'm going to talk about uh, something else. So I ran into some problems with a recording that I did. Um, the audio is kind of messed up. I'm not really sure how to fix it. I'm still kind of new to this type of thing. So uh, I've been working on that for a couple weeks. I can't get this weird clicking sound to go away. So I'll keep working on that, but uh, also with COVID, I've been having a little bit of problems trying to get into some places. So today is going to be different. Uh, instead of like a museum, I'm just going to talk about kind of the history of this one area and um, this one item. So my boyfriend and I recently had to go travel to go uh, visit my mom to help her out with some things. So on our way there, we took our camper that we built, not to brag pretty awesome. But we took our camper and we were traveling through, you know, trying to avoid um, staying in crowded camp campgrounds and things because we were trying to avoid COVID as much as possible while traveling. So we found our way through this beautiful area and it's called the Land Between the Lakes. And what it is, is it's a, a national recreation area and it's in Kentucky and Tennessee. And it's basically this, it's the largest inland peninsula in the country, in the United States. And it's nestled in between Lake Barkley and Kentucky Lake. And it covers about 170,000 acres. It has nine wildlife refuges. Um, it also has, strangely enough, elk and bison prairies. So there's actually people that are there that have bison in Tennessee. So we saw those while we were there. So that was uh, really an interesting thing to randomly see in Tennessee. So this area is also surrounded by two different rivers, the Cumberland and the Tennessee River. And so this area was really important to the iron ore industry in the 1800s to the early 1900s. So with all these waterways here, it was a great place to transport goods because, you know, this was before the time that there were railroads, they didn't exist. So the fastest way to transport a lot of um, heavy items were through the water. So this area also, I mean, it was woodland, so it had trees everywhere, which you need a lot of trees if you're going to have an iron industry. So the, the main iron industry kind of took off and it lasted from about 1820 to about 1927. And just like how you purify gold, um, you also have to purify iron. So it has to be extracted from hematite in order to make the iron bars. And that's kind of where these huge furnaces come in. So you're driving down the road uh, in the LBL and all of a sudden out of nowhere, there's just this huge limestone structure. It's like three stories tall, 10 feet wide, 40 feet high. Uh, and it's this old furnace from the 1800s. And there are only two in that area that are still intact furnaces. And there was actually 18 total in that area. But these are the only, there's only two that are still standing. And one of those is the Great Western Iron Furnace. So it has a pretty unsuccessful history. And uh, so kind of moving into that, I wanted to tell you a little bit of how these furnaces work. As I said before, you know, there's these huge buildings are made of limestone slabs. They're rectangular and they kind of taper upwards towards the top. They have a huge um, chimney in the middle. Uh, they're basically just like a huge kiln, really. And um, 
they're usually positioned right next to a hill so that that way a bridge can be built from the side of the hill straight over to the top of the kiln for them to dump the materials into the top of the chimney. What the workers of the time would do is they would dump a mixture of charcoal, hematite ore, and limestone. And these would have to be, you know, carried manually with carts to the top and dumped. And you would basically have this huge buildup within this chimney of these types of items. The hematite contained about 60% pure iron. And then the charcoal provided the heat for, um, like when it was burning, it provided a lot of heat. And so these steam, there were steam pumps that were at the base of the furnace, and they would provide these huge bellows of air into the melting pot, and um, it would create tremendous heat. Tremendous heat would build up inside of these things. Um, the temperatures were at about 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So all these things would be coming in top. They would be burning it so that they could melt down the iron to liquid. At the base of this burning chimney, you would have liquid limestone and liquid iron. And so it would run down to the bottom of the furnace and it would pool down there. The melted limestone would kind of float off on the top of the iron and then it would kind of run off. So you could get rid of that. It's a byproduct that they didn't use. And the byproduct is actually called uh, slag. And you can find slag all over this whole area here. I mean, they, you know, they didn't have a lot of uh, protocols that they had to follow. So they just dumped them wherever. And you can find them. There are these little tiny blue shiny rocks everywhere. They're just littering the ground. But I do have to tell you that the LVL forbids you to collect any because it's considered tampering with historical evidence. So you have been warned. I don't get blamed. <laughs> so the melted iron ore after the slag had been you know, taken off, it would be a melted iron ore at the bottom that collected in this big pot-like structure. And that would have to be dumped about every six hours. And they would dump it by lifting the huge metal door and kind of just tipping it out. And then what that would do is the molten iron would travel down these um, built up wet sand channels. And I don't know if you have ever heard the term pig iron, but that's actually, this is how that term actually originated. Um, it's because you would have this one mainstream through the sand of this melted iron ore, and then it would they would create little channels off to the side of it, like small smaller channels leading off. And so it looked kind of like a mom pig nursing her little iron piglets. So that's where that came from is the pig iron. So um, a huge part of you know this process was actually creating the charcoal that was going to be needed for the high heat to melt the hematite and limestone. Uh, how do you create charcoal, you may ask? Well, let me tell you. Uh, you burn trees, but like tons and tons of trees. It takes so many trees. Um, what workers would do is they would create these um, sealed hearths, smaller ovens basically, around these furnaces. And these would be used for burning the wood. So you'd fill them with wood and then you kind of smother them a little bit. You deprive them of oxygen and that causes the wood to burn really slowly. And that's what creates the charcoal that they used in the furnace. So these charcoal hearths would make about like in, in about two weeks, they could create 2000 bushels of charcoal. And interestingly, the amount produced that 2000 bushels would only blast the furnace for about 24 hours. 
So, I mean, obviously, there were a lot of these hearths created in the area, but let's just talk about those resources for a second. They needed, in order to run this furnace for just 24 hours, they had to create and use 2,000 bushels of charcoal, 2 tons of limestone, nearly 30 tons of iron ore, and that was only for one 24-hour period to create iron. And these furnaces worked around the clock for six days a week most of the time. So we're talking huge quantities. And the resources that are needed to make this happen, right? You need really large limestone quarries where you have men manually blasting, collecting, and, and you know carting over these huge amounts of limestone. Same thing with the iron ore that had to be you know, quarried out of the ground. Then you had all this charcoal process, which needed tons of trees. So you have crazy amounts of logging in this area. So, I mean, there was a lot of work to be done just to run one single furnace. And there were 18 in the area. So as you can imagine, this area kind of boomed in population from all the workers that were working in this area. So, you know, they had a ton of workers and they, they also did have uh, slaves before the Civil War. Uh, so, you know, they had this huge population of people. And as kind of a fun side note to this, there's a road, and it's called the Silver Trail Road, and that's uh, it leads to one of the two furnaces. And it was actually named after the paymaster who used to travel along that route to pay the workers. So, thus, the Silver Trail. But uh, what's ridiculous is the workers didn't actually get paid with silver or really money of any kind. They were actually paid with what's called scrip, uh, basically a voucher. And this voucher could be redeemed for supplies at the company-owned store. Uh, highly illegal today, which is really good, but what a what a messed up way to just keep your workers completely dependent on you so they couldn't they couldn't go anywhere else or buy anything they were just constantly using their own labor and then what they the benefits that they got from that labor they had to give back to the, to the company so you know not great it wasn't great for the workers it was really hard labor they had really you know poor working conditions um, these areas uh, developed really poor air quality because of all the burning constant burning um, and because of that, they also had really poor water quality. Again, they didn't have any of these restrictions that a lot of these kinds of operations do now. So, I mean, poor water quality, poor air quality. They were felling all of the trees. So, you know, that decreases <laughs> the air quality even farther. And, it, you know, there's more runoff creating poor water quality. Then you also, um, a lot of these furnaces were really poorly managed. Uh, and, I mean, you know, you're just using up all these resources so fast that the, these small towns that boomed out of nowhere, kind of like um, like a like a California gold boom town, you know, they started to die really quickly as well. Uh, so out of out of all this area, they and all these people that they had, they had a lot of people dying, unfortunately. And so this small area has two hundred and seventeen cemeteries. And what's really remarkable is, you know, out of all of the infrastructure that was built to house these large cities supporting these furnaces, there's really only a few lasting structures from the 1800s. There's the two furnaces. There's a, a replicated barn or a replicated farm, I believe, in the area. Uh, and then there's cemeteries. And there's 
so many cemeteries that the so the USDA Forest Service actually maintains the roads to those cemeteries and that's kind of in consolation because when this area became a recreation area uh, some people were forced to move out so you know kind of in remembrance of the people who were there um, and the people who had to leave they I guess they kind of um, keep these cemeteries up but I mean it's just it's really interesting that those are the only structures that are still there so Okay, we have all this, but heading back to the main item here is the Great Western Iron Works itself, this huge furnace. This huge furnace opened in what like opened originally started producing in 1855, and during its first 34 weeks, it produced 1,350 tons of high-quality iron. Then its short producing life was over. <laughs> Uh, it only ran for 34 weeks. The furnace owners, William Newell and John Pritchett, were heavily in debt over the purchase of the 10 acres of land. Um, they had to acquire this land because they needed the ore, they needed the limestone, they needed the timber to produce the iron. So, you know, you have a huge initial startup cost. You have to um, buy the land, then you have to pay workers to build this huge structure, and then you finally can start creating the iron. So, you know, it kind of it's not an immediately profitable enterprise. So, you know, they had poor management as well. They were in debt from, you know, starting up this business. Uh, they created their own limited resource, you know, because once you use those, they weren't planting more trees. They just ran out of resources fast. And then there was a, a nationwide economic recession that also kind of spelled doom, really, for this super short-lived furnace. So, you know, after those first 34 weeks, the next year, in 1856, the owners posted it for sale on December 20th in the Clarksville Jeffersonian newspaper. And, uh, quote, here's, here's the actual listing. Furnace, eight wood slides, four yokes of oxen, 12 wagons and gear, one set of carpentry tools, one set of blacksmith tools, two extra steam engines, one frist mill, eight horse carts and harnesses, and 80 likely invaluable Negro men experienced furnace hands. I tried to actually get pictures of the article, but unfortunately you have to get a subscription to a site to view them. Uh, and if I tried to do that for every resource that I've used for this podcast, I, you know, <laughs> wouldn't be in a good place. So I can post that link if you are interested, um, but yeah, you have to pay to see it. So, um, you know, there's this whole area land between the two rivers. Um, there's actually the Golden Pond Visitor Site or Visitor Center there as well. And it's actually named for the old town that was there, Golden Pond, and notorious for moonshine operations. Um, the local legend for the Golden Pond is that there was an infamous Prohibition gangster who would would send a seaplane to land on the river near Golden Pond and pick up a supply of Kentucky moonshine for his Chicago speakeasies. So uh, a really cool little area, and I'm really glad that we got to go and see everything. And I hope that you guys learned a little bit and had a, a good listen here. Uh, I want to say thank you guys so much for all of your support. It's really amazing. And I'm having so much fun doing this podcast and I'm learning so much stuff. 
yeah, I have, if you guys are interested, I am on Facebook. You know, I have a Facebook page for Curator's Choice Podcast. I have an Instagram for that, Curator's Choice Podcast. I also have, technically I have two websites, which uh, is a little unfortunate, but um, I do, I host all of my podcasts on the uh, Buzzsprout page. And that kind of allows me to put the podcast out on a lot of different mediums like, you know, Pandora and Spotify and Apple Podcasts and things like that. But you unfortunately can't post any pictures on that site. So what I do is I link my personal webpage that I have on there, which is alaanderson.net slash curator's choice. And on there, I post all the pictures that are pertinent for like every single episode. There's a lot of pictures and there's, um, you know, relevant links for articles and things like that. So if you have the time and are inclined and so inclined, uh, please check those out. And thank you guys so much. I'll I'll be posting again soon.